Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and I'm joined today by another writer and film critic, podcaster as well, an author. His name is Kai Ross and he is, along with his friend Chris... Bainbridge. Bainbridge. He's a co-host <laughs> and author of the book Free For All, which is a episode-by-episode guide of The Prisoner, the sort of cult um, British TV show starring Patrick McGowan. And um, I've I've wanted to have Chris on the on the show for a, a long time because it's um, one of those shows which fascinates me, and I've I've. I've loved, and I think I found it about the same time as you did, the early 90s, when they were repeating it on, I think, on Channel 4. Is that right? It was, yeah. It was the 25th anniversary. And it was all, it was the, it was the 25th anniversary of all things 1967. So I'd sort of just, Sergeant Pepper and the Summer of Love and everything. So it was absolutely everywhere, documentaries made and all these sort of things. But we'd been primed a little bit. There was a show called, do you remember a show called um, TV Heaven? Yes, it was a yes. sort of yeah. It was a sort of clips. Well, not a clips show so much. It was just Frank Muir. When it was really, it was a very easy job for Frank. Bless him. He would just stand there and go, "Hello, this was uh, in 1967. This was made." And and it was a lot of 
basically shows from the from each year. He, I remember the 1967 one had uh, "Do Not Adjust Your Set," the sort of pre-Python thing, right? With David Frost. Yes, yeah. So, they, so Channel Four would sort of put on these things, and then it was it was the last ever one, and they showed uh, the prisoner. And the episode they chose was the girl who is deaf. And if you're a prisoner fan, you'll know that you couldn't have picked at least a less <laughs> representative episode because it was a sort of one of these uh, literally had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the the series that he wasn't in the village it was a, a story and it was but it was fantastic yeah it's almost like a bottle episode the opposite of a bottle episode it's like not in the <laughs> bottle you know it's outside <laughs> of the bottle yeah but it was just I, i'd never seen anything like it and it had sort of been in the air, the, the whole pr prisoner thing had started, the sort of the cult thing had developed, I think, from about the mid-80s onwards. Because it was, it kind of had a sort of stink of, not failure, it was just sort of because of the ending, the last episode was so sort of divisive. And then it sort of went away a little bit. And then it started to find the right audience. And then by, they showed it again in 1982. And then it suddenly became this big thing. So I sort of, I'd heard about it. And I, uh, Chris and I, we both live about an hour away from Port Merion. And so my mum my saying, oh, well, it was only up the road. And so when we started watching it, I just I couldn't believe that it was literally within an hour's drive. And it just suddenly very, very quickly became this big obsession. So wearing the badge and everything. So when did you, when did you visit Port Merion? Oh, I think that's, that's almost immediately that, uh, as soon as we could. The Christmas of 1992, I think, when it was still being shown. And they had a sort of uh, gift shop there. There's a sort of in, in number six's old house. It's still kind of there then, but it was it was the prisoner shop. And of course, they had these. Uh, they're the thing. There was a, a thing in the girl who was deaf. There was a he drinks a pint. Do you remember this? And then you can just about see something on the bottom of the glass, and he has to sort of down the pint to sort of to see this thing that's saying you've just been poisoned. And they, ah, brilliant. Oh, no, it's absolutely wonderful. But they were selling these stickers to put on the bottom of pint glasses, and I've, uh, which is highly irresponsible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, somebody going to the hospital immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Having a stomach pump? Oh, <clears throat> just with the mischief makers from the uh, prisoner circle. But uh, got loads of those pens and stuff. So it was a, it was always a beeline to go there. But I mean, as, a, as just as a place itself, it's, it's there's nothing like it on earth. And well, what's the what's the history of the place? Was it was it some sort of industrialist, benevolent sort of industrialist, or? Oh, I don't. I, I, I don't know about his kind of extra architectural sort of past, but he was a fellow called Clef Williams Ellis, who was a a, a a master of the plus four, wonderful sock wearing gentleman. And I think I think it was his land. I'm not sure, but he 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 wanted to create an Italianate village. But his 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 kind of brief to himself was that he wanted to create a sort of a, a, a village that would basically work within the natural environments that it was already in, would enhance the 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 natural beauty of what it was, as opposed to sort of in, in fitting in in a weird way. And he used to basically just it was a he'd call it a, a home for fallen buildings. It was he. He basically, if he, it, 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 he put the word out, and if if anyone, you know, there's a famously there's a, a sort of a colonnade from Bristol that they were about to put the wrecking ball through. No, 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 send it up. So he sort of all these things are about to be destroyed. He'd sort of no, 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 ship them up to Port Merion, and he'd, he'd he'd factor them into the village. So it's a lot of it's kind of almost secondhand buildings, um, but it's the, and then because of the Italianate thing, 
very quickly it started to get used as an Italian setting, which it does in, in Danger Man. You see, you see all these places. It's an earlier Patrick McGowan show. It is, yes, which we uh, may, may be... I'm discussing with Chris tomorrow, in fact, for, an, for, for a Christmas show. But, um, yeah, that you'd get that a lot. You'd see these old ITC shows, and so usually Warren Mitchell walking around in a moustache saying, uh, ah, Senor Templar, you're here. And uh, it's, uh, after, after some stock footage of the Coliseum, and thought, I know that place, it's Port Merion. But it was uh, obviously cheaper than flying them out there. It's like the the later series of the Persuaders, where the, there's the stock stock footage of Cannes, and then they're very obviously in Coventry afterwards. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think actually, I think the Persuaders they actually went there. There was just the budget eating travel thing. They said, no, 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 let's shoot there and use real champagne. You can see Tony Curtis and Roger Moore getting fatter and fatter with each. I don't know, using real champagne. Well, that's a show that, that deserves a podcast of in its in itself. Surely, surely. Got, yeah. Yes. I, I loved all that. It was, do you remember in the, it was just in the early 90s, and maybe they were just needed uh, slots to fill. But all those ITC shows started to just come back. Man with a, a Suitcase was another one. I remember the Man oh, with a Suitcase they showed all those. And the other one that was great, it's a slightly different, it's not an ITC show, it's an American show. But um, and I've got a real hankering to rewatch this crime story, the Michael Mann, um, yeah, Dennis Farina led show that was absolutely brilliant, and um, yeah, it, I kind of haven't seen it, and I've I, I actually recently looked on for for the DVD because I thought that's a box set I would I'd eat, you know, quite <laughs> happily eat with a knife and fork. And I couldn't find it. It was like imports only, and you know there, there wasn't a or, or like a hundred and fifty dollars or something like that. It was very, very tricky to find. Yeah, I, I, I remember. I don't remember it being on TV, but I remember seeing it in video shops. Mm. It was it was it was that classy. I just remember mm. Dennis Farina's kind of mustachioed sort of snarl, sort of staring out of the covers. But there were loads of them as well. Mm. Um, uh, I can't um, remember. It. Buffalo Bill from Silent of the Lambs is a recurring character in it. I mean, it's, yeah, the, the actor, exactly, Ted Levine, the actor, is a, is a recurring character. He's um, ace. Amazing, amazing stuff. <laughs> is she a big fat girl? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so, Patrick McGoon, what about the, what about the sort of like, origin of the show because this is a, a show that that as you uh talk about in the book and on the podcast is very much sort of patrick mcgoon's baby yeah well it started it started his the guy who produced it uh with him uh or produced it for uh, george markstein uh his he was the one who came up with the idea he'd heard of these these places uh basically holiday camps where they would retire spies and that whole concept, I mean, there was one called, oh, ah, God, my brains, Inver, Inver Lodge or something in Scotland. Mm. And it was a genuine thing. They would actually sort of get these spies who were at retirement age and you go and stay here. Cause, and I think McGowan just thought, what a brilliant concept. And mm. I think he, I think, I think Mark seemed wanted to do something a little bit more grounded and more like Le Carre. Whereas I think McGowan started to think, no, no, it started to sort of think outside the box a little bit. And then obviously the idea of that you couldn't escape and it had took on that slightly more science fiction-y edge. Um, but it was a sort of, uh, it was a, it was just created by various people. And I think McGowan was the one who just kind of, kind of went further with it. But he, he had a whole good crew from, from, from the Danger Man days. David Tomlin 
mm-hmm. was his partner. And he was a fantastic, uh, I mean, he became like the greatest assistant director the world's ever known. But he, he was, we, I've been watching a lot of Danger Man for the, for the podcast. And you just see these same recurring names in the credits. But I think it was certainly by the, certainly by the end of it, it was absolutely McGowan's opus. It, was, it became something of an obsession. I think he drove himself a little bit mad, taking on all the responsibility for for, for, for doing it as well. And perhaps you know, well, actually, let's come to the ending uh, later because it's uh, yeah, I don't want to jump the gun, so to speak. Um, so that I think that generic uh, thing it, it seems to be resonant of where it is historically as well that 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 le carré sort of anti James Bond ordinariness mm. doesn't quite fit into to where they are in the 1960s as you say you know sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band 1967 you, you know you have a feel that they want this to be a metaphor they want it to be kafka they want it to be science fiction they want it mm. to be a whole load of things yeah but i think i mean also danger man watching a lot of the danger man stuff that really does have a lot of lacari in it um that that's from the same sort of school obviously it's not as dour as the spire came in from the cold but you can tell that they're being sort of made in the same era particularly the f- the first tranche there were half an hour it's a very different sort of titles it's, it's like very very black and white mm. um and then obviously suddenly you're into color and it's just like the, there are there are in fact there are only two danger man episodes they made in color and the, the whole tone shifts completely mm. and mm. the prisoner is very much in color and it's yeah the 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 whole attitudes change them but it's still i think it's trying to be anti various things it's desperately not trying to be james bond it's not trying to be it's, it's trying to sort of go away from the curve i think and again i mean i know you mentioned i don't want to make too much of the sergeant pepper connection but it has that 60s thing of sort of going through victorian junk shops and edwardian you know it's yes. got the you know the penny farthing and it's got the the, the vintage car that he drives around um yeah yeah, you know, uh, and even even you know everybody looking like they're from a croquet party at the, at the village. <laughs> yeah, it's a very sort of very very sort of in- rather not even British, very English thing, isn't it? And, but mm. you're right, absolutely Edwardian, Arcadia, Victorian stuff. It was it was it was everywhere then, wasn't it? I think talked about this with Chris. It was a sort of rediscovery of. The, the Lennon, the Beatles, all these artists were sort of going back to their childhood a lot, weren't they? And they were starting to rediscover things like Alice in Wonderland mm. and Wind in the Willows. And then suddenly there was, and Pink Floyd were very big on this, weren't they? With the Sid Barrett stuff. Which was, let's face it, the best stuff Pink Floyd did. That's my, uh, that'll be, that'll be my, <clears throat> my contention. I, I, I'll <sighs> happily fight you with broken bottles. Bike, bike, bike was the peak of. Uh... <laughs> no, bike was ace, absolutely. Yeah. I know, it, was, it, was, it is. It's wonderful. The many stages. Yes, but, yes. Um, but no, it's it, it's absolutely at the at the at the peak of that. Uh, possibly for the nineteen sixty seven stuff, which of course they were making in nineteen sixty six, mm. and then the late by the the sort of second half of the series in sort of sixty seven sixty eight. It, the mood is sort of changed. It was actually getting away from that. It was getting just a, just a little bit, but it was it, it was just not sort of peak sixties. It was peak sixty seven, peak peak May sixty seven. You know, it was mm. it was so specific. Mm. Um, it was wonderful. It was it was very much a la mood. 
I, w- I wonder as well if something to do with its reputation and the way it had to be sort of rediscovered in the 90s and rediscovered um, by different generations, uh, rather than it just always being in our consciousness like like other other shows from the period. I mean, partly it's to do with just the fact it didn't continue. Uh, it, mm. You know, there weren't yeah. other iterations. But also maybe partly it was to do with Patrick McGowan's career that he didn't um, sort of go on to movie su- superstardom. So it wasn't like, oh, did you ever see what he did on TV in the 60s? You know, in the way yeah. so Roger Moore, people would go back and watch The Saint or because Roger Moore then was in James Bond. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. I don't really know why. I mean, famously, he sort of stepped out of the prisoner for about six months to make Ice Station Zebra or Zebra. I'm going to say Zebra. Yeah. I mean, it's an yeah. American film, so I'm not sure what the pronunciation would oh, be. If I, I'll, I'll go with Zebra then if it's yeah. American. Yeah. It's a, but, um, a, but a British novel because it's Alistair MacLean. I'm going to go back to Zebra then. <laughs> <laughs> Who was but, American? Zebra. Going back to Ice Station Zebra, it was. Um, I mean, he stole the show in that. I mean, mm. it was, it was Rock, Rock's thing and Borgnine and Jim Brown, but everyone was talking about how great Patrick McGoohan was in this thing. You think, well, and it was a huge hit. Mm. And yet he didn't quite, it, I don't know if it was a deliberate thing or I don't know if the prisoner burnt him out, but he didn't, you're right, he didn't have that sort of secondary 70s thing that exactly that, I mean, Roger Moore, I suppose, he did have the Bond thing, but he was still making pretty big films outside of Bond. But mm. I guess Magoo never had that big secondary burst as a, as a movie star as opposed to a TV star. Mm. Despite the fact, I mean, he did. I mean, he's, there's still these wonderful performances, obviously, Escape from Alcatraz. Right, yes, of course. He plays a sort of sadistic warden of the of the jail. Yeah, which is a wonderful twist that the uh, the the ultimate prisoners become the ultimate warden. But he was great. He, he was great in that as well. Yeah, I mean, he was. In, of course, the other thing, and I think you cover this in several episodes of the podcast, that his Columbo appearances, mm. and he oh, yeah. he was good friends with Peter Falk as well. Yes, I think they uh, they both um, they both enjoyed a dram, but they were also they both. I think they both. They saw in each other a, a sort of a, a brother figure, who, who kind of they could sort of go up against the networks because Peter Falk. You've interviewed, um, you did uh, shooting Columbo on one of your uh, rights on film, and he, uh, he, he was warring with the networks all the time. And I think when McGowan, he saw somebody else who would quite happily just kind of go, "No, I'm not," <laughs> and and just wouldn't wouldn't uh, accept any of their nonsense. And they were, and I, you know, and who both took it very, very, very seriously. I think Peter Falk, Peter Falk, you know, he was an artist. He wasn't. He, he desperately wanted to make these things as good as they could possibly be. And McGoohan was the same. So I think they had a lot in common. And I think also McGoohan, he, you know, for all his, uh, this is my thing. He worked well with a, you know, uh, like minds, like David Tomlin, like. Um, yeah, you know, Peter Falk. I think he, he he kind of worked better as a as a duo or as part of a a team. And he did. He 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 wasn't just in them. He he directed a lot of those. He rewrote a lot of uh, his episodes. So he was a big big part of uh, Columbo. I think Peter Falk's when it, whenever he got the chance, he'd sort of go on about how great how great Pat was. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, one of the 
great points I love from David Koenig's book. And yeah, the episode we did uh, on writers and film was, was brilliant, Shooting Columbo. I think it's called The History of TV's Most Rumpled Detective. Um, yeah. Uh, I love one of the stories is that he did... Um, uh, Whenever he'd come back from a John Cassavetes movie, he'd do Husbands or he'd do a Woman on a... Um, oh, what's it called? Woman, woman, no, Woman Under the Influence. I was almost oh, going to say that. Yes. No, I was going to say that, so I channeled, channeled <laughs> that mistake into you. I projected it onto you. Um, uh, yeah, Woman Under the Influence. When he'd come back from filming one of those, he would want to transfer that into Colombo. He'd go, let's just improvise scenes. I don't want to... I don't want to go with the script. I want to improvise script scenes. And they'd be like, but this is a really carefully constructed teleplay where we need the audience to know information. Otherwise it won't make sense because it's a it's about an intricate crime and you detecting it. And he was like, he didn't care. He just wanted to, you know, to to have it um he what he wanted that honesty in in the, oh, in yeah. the TV shows, and it, it goes with what Patrick McGowan was quite happy to do. I think with the prisoner was have real ambitions above and beyond what I think other people were expecting. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, that was great. He used to do sort of just endless takes, and it's like this is a TV show piece. We don't do endless takes. We do two. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And, then he, and he had yeah, had in one of them as well. Etude in Black, and I think Ben Gazzara did the... Ben Gazzara actually directed my favourite episode, Friend Indeed. Is that the one where they're on the cruise ship? He did... No, he directed that one as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. With uh, uh, Robert Vaughan. That's right. Yeah. Wearing the amazing red sort of uh, black suit with a... He looks like Benicio del Toro in The Usual Suspects. <laughs> it looks amazing in that. Uh, uh, and that's one of those where you learn a fact from um from a Columbo episode which is uh as a really throwaway line where it's a feather and they say oh well maybe it came from a pillow and he goes oh no they don't they have foam pillows in a medical place because of allergies and you just go how the hell did you know that and I'm, and plus I'm going to memorize that forever I'm always going to remember that fact what was the other Ben Gazzara episode Ben Gazzara was a friend indeed it's one where he uh it's plays with it a little bit it's the the chief commissioner is the is the baddie oh but it's got this and it's it's got a real sort of, sort of grittiness to it which sometimes you don't get in columbus they can you know in a it's just a more grittier than and, and the and the baddie i forget his name richard kiley doesn't even try to make friends with him first there's none of this kind of sort of jocular sort of uh to and fro's between them he's just he's 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 columbus his subordinate and he's he makes no attempt to sort of befriend him at all and so by the time he sort of gets him in one of the greatest gotchas, it's it's such a wonderful sort of <laughs> mm. you deserve this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm going through them uh uh at the moment, and I think I'm on season four at the moment. I'm just sort of treating myself to a Columbo every two weeks, and it's it's yeah. it warms the heart how good they are. It's a, there's such quality TV, you know, there's a there's there's room. There's room in your screening schedule for one, you know, great sort of crime series. Well, there's a there's a channel over here. I don't know if you get it, um, but they every Sunday they just that's all they put on. So it's just almost impossible to to miss them. Right. But it's right. Uh, it, it does. I mean, I, I don't have that kind of time in my life 
uh, alas, but I, that sounds like a perfect day, just not getting up. <laughs> nothing but Colombo just endlessly all day. Just ration yourself one every two weeks. That's uh, it's, it's, no, it's, I, I, it's that's, just think about actually, no, you, that's just gorging. Now, you yeah. need to ration these things, yeah, because otherwise, you start to see the strings and you start to see the repetitions and you start to see, oh, I see what they're doing there. And um, oh, yeah, uh, but but you know. Yeah, I, I also because that's how they made them. They made them kind of quite rarely. They would have like a, a year in between seasons and things like that. So there was a there was yeah. sort of, uh, they would spend a lot of time on them. As you as you know, as you were saying, the, the, there was a lot of care spent on them. Yeah, and they were made by really good. I think Jonathan Demi, yeah, uh, directed a couple. Um, so sort of big, a bit like the prisoner. Actually, they had. Um, and, and also Danger Man, you start to see these directed by, and a lot of these things, Charles Crichton, Seth mm. Holt, you know, these, these are, wow, my God, these are, these are, these are proper movie makers, you know, there's a, there's a reason these things look so good. And, and Don Chaffee, who directed the first, I don't know, well, I mean, they were spread across, but I think the first, the first tranche of episodes, he was, he directed it. He was a, Pretty Jason and the Argonauts. He dressed, uh, directed uh, a million years BC. He was a big. He was he was used to sort of sort of creating massive widescreen epics, and it shows. You know, a lot of TV when it's directed by you know, journeyman, to use sort of. Uh, you, you can kind of tell, or people who are actually used to just making television shows, when you actually started to bring in more cinematic eyes, it uh, it, it definitely showed. I always um, thought and... thought that bit of him running across the beach and getting caught by the bouncing ball is is like that always struck me as something that wasn't televisual. That was something that that felt like a movie, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's just something about that image was much more graphic and much more, you know, cinematic. You know? Oh, I agree. And it was it was very handy. You can tell the episodes that were actually shot there, um, as opposed to because the, they would they would basically shoot as much as they possibly could on, on set or at Port Merion. And then a lot of the time they would have to go to Boronwood where they'd shoot the interiors and they'd have these cloths with pictures of Port Merion on the background. And you could kind of tell. Um, but the ones that were there, because there was no sort of, well, if we turn the camera this way, we'll see the gaffer eating a sandwich at the edge of the stage. You know, so we've got, we've got this kind of limited amount of camera space. You could just turn it anywhere and... There's an episode, Dance of the Dead. Do you remember that one? With Mary Morris as number two, and it's just like a, and there's this spectacular shot or a scene set on the beach with the tides out, and they're having this chat, this sort of interrogation, sort of number six and Mary Morris, and it just looks. You're just watching this. This isn't. This isn't telly. This is. This is something much, much more going on here. And also in the editing as well, that first episode arrival when he arrives, there's, there there are scenes where he kind of he's looking around, he sees somebody in a clock tower, and he sort of runs up, and there's nobody there, and he goes down. And he, but it's the the way it's edited is is very very unusual for for TV at that time. Again, it's the kind of thing you would expect us to be sort of watching in a cinema. I mean, there's talking about that thing that you were saying earlier in terms of things were changing, 1967 May, and how specific it is, and how we're going away from the hippies and we're going away from that. There is a sort of pessimism to to there is a sort of spikiness to the. It's it's not uh, it's not 
it is a fun show. There's a lot of humor and all the rest of it, but it's yeah. not a fun show. It's not an easy, easy watch. It's it, it's always kind of disturbing. It's always kind of prickly, you know, a bit yeah. like Magoon's own character. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's it's designed in the. I think we mentioned this in the book. It's a bit like the Fugitive, in as much as he can't leave. Mm. So he's he's doomed to lose at the end of every episode. So it's going to have that sort of not so much downbeat, but he has kind of little mini victories. There are a couple of them where he sort of like there's my one of the great episodes, Hammer into Anvil, where he he, he reduces Patrick Gar- Cargill to a dribbling mess uh, by sort of driving him mad and making him resign. And it's like, yes, you won. Well, he's still he's still a prisoner. But uh, and other ones where he's sort of wet this sort of like a, a, a draw. But ultimately, he's got to he's got to lose mm. at the end of every single episode. Um, and I think, in terms of what he was trying to sort of get at, in to, in, in the metaphor of it, of the, what he was trying to sort of say, yeah, he he was he was being he was being very challenging. I don't think he was being optimistic much. I think you know, the, I mean, talk about the ending in 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 a while. I think there's. Yeah, there are the, it's a sort of this is what we need to do but I think it's undercut by a sort of sense that but I bet we're not going to do this though mm. we are sort of to a certain extent doomed um, it's sort of it's a kind of if we if we only do this if we only sort of start changing and doing this we'll be we'll get through this mm. well I don't think we will so it's it's that sort of it's what, that's what it's kind of what I mean about the sort of the optimism of, of 1967 and then the sort of kind of the the, the increasing sense of boom of 1968 you know there are mm. two very different years in time in terms of what we're about to you know where we're at for me it was always while i was watching it was there was always a sense of this absent number one that you you had you yeah. the number twos were always changing the number six was him and he was always asking who's number one who's number one and it it was it was almost like um there was I remember once I was teaching Citizen Kane to uh, some some of my students, and we were well teaching. I was we were discussing it. They'd watched it, and we were discussing it. And someone said to me, "Oh, um, spoiler for Citizen Kane, Rosebud." It, they said it's it's meaningful, but it's not explanatory. And I thought mm. that's really interesting. That's such an interesting distinction. I know what you mean. It it does mean something. But when you think about it, it doesn't really. I mean, if it's a, if it explains, if you're saying it explains everything, then it's kind of very trite as a film. You know, he was he became a big media mogul because they took away his slats. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like um, which symbolized his childhood and blah 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 blah. But if it means something a bit more poetic and resonant and you can't quite pin it down, then I get it. And the same is sort of true of number one. Is it like, who? what is this thing? Oh, it's just you. You know, it could be mm. quite quite a trite way of, uh, of going forward. But the fact that number one is sort of the, the, the power behind everything and, the, and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's more a force than it is an individual. Yeah. And I guess... I mean, another spoiler alert. I mean, mm. uh, the, after after everyone thinking, oh, it's going to be the butler, or it's going to mm. be this, it turns out that it was actually, in, a, in a, and again, an extraordinarily edited, brief scene. Uh, it turns out to be himself. Da, yeah. da, 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 da. Or, but in exactly the same way, not that no, that isn't himself. 
it's just by by this point in this particular episode, everything everything is 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 a metaphor. This this it's not it's not even vaguely a spy show by the final episode. But it's not. But but that that barely scratches the surface of what of what that actually means or what that even suggests that you're your own prisoner or something. You mean you get you can you can sort of reduce it to slightly sort of something as trite as that, like a you know we are we are our own worst enemy. That's what it was. It's all about. But it's uh, I mean we got we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours and hours. But um, and again, that's kind of what the hope. The, the the element of hope that I was all sort of talking about. They said, "Well, if you actually accept that, then there's probably something you can you could sort of take control of yourself a little bit." But I think with, without saying, "Oh, it's all everybody else's fault." Oh, no, 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 it's mine. It's me. It's me. It's me. I'm the one. I'm the I'm the one who's still in bed at noon. Yeah, but I mean, like that ending was. I mean, what? How was that received? Was it? It was. Uh, you know, because I haven't looked into this as deeply as, as you have. I obviously saw it as the ending, and to me, in the nineteen nineties, it felt of a piece with the whole show and and crazy, crazy AF, as the kids say, but not necessarily. <laughs> uh, you know, not not necessarily wildly out of. Well, it was. I, I think because. There were so many. So it it, it 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 was doing very very well. It was a big. The numbers for its uh, its viewing figures were were in the tens of millions. Uh, so it was still a big show. It wasn't. It wasn't designed to be a little cult show. It was done, designed to be a big prime time thing. So all in the papers, ever. Oh, who's number one? Da, 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 da. Oh, we're going to find out. We're going to find out. So it was a big deal, and everyone was literally expecting a chair to turn around and it would be Orson Welles stroking a cat or something like that. And it was just like. And then it was what is what is it, was it? And no one can understand it. And, it, and it, it gets a little bit apocryphal at this point. You know, apparently Magoo was chased from the country. People were sort of said, so yeah, the ITV switchboard just basically caught fire, and pitchforks and torches and all that sort of stuff. But it was it was certainly it was designed specifically to to not not to be controversial, but to sort of get everyone sort of reacting whether that was whether that was kind of how dare you i've sat through 17 hours of this i wanted roger moore to be <laughs> to be never <laughs> you've denied me or people just going oh genius brilliant so i knew it was going to be him all along and little things like you know in the in the opening titles every week it says who are you you uh, uh, i can't remember how it says now but uh you're known to you no I can't remember. There was a sort of hiding in plain sight bit of dialogue, which I can't, which oh, my when, brain is... Well, maybe even it's a sort of who is number one. You are number six, <laughs> you know. Sort of that's like exactly what it is. Yeah, you, comma, <laughs> all, the, all that sort of stuff. So it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was newsworthy. It was in all the papers the following day and everything. My God, what's he done? But and I think that's exactly what McGowan wanted to do. I think he wanted he desperately what he didn't he didn't want some passive sort of oh right great oh what's on BBC two now yeah uh, it exactly was, he wanted everyone oh yeah <laughs> the end of the Truman Show that's got to be one of the best endings of a film ever isn't it brilliant yeah yeah you that, John? yeah. That's it, whatever the great drama is about the Truman Show. Everybody will just turn over. It's not like no, it's not going to exactly, be the end of the world. Exactly. You know? And if you ask, if you ask Chris uh, Bainbridge, he'll say because there was I don't know if you 
it's best not to even it's best to pretend it never happened but there was an actual remake of the prisoner jim caviezel with, um, jim catweasel is um <laughs> in, uh, and it was it was all it was all a sort of dream and a was it a big farmer thing forget it if you ask chris the best remake ever of the prisoner was the truman show it's like it's like if that's if you were going to do it now you know in in an age of 24-hour rolling tv and all that sort of stuff that is exactly what the prisoner is hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do you stand on the on the sort of you know okay it's a metaphor it, do, do you feel there are metaphors and analogies which are sort of like coherent I know I read Alex uh, Cox's book I think you had him on as a guest didn't you We did uh, yes. yes yes that was eight and he's um he's got a very I might even put you in touch with him if I remember rightly he um he's got a a very specific theory about what the prisoner is and it's like that's it. It's it's the British nuclear um, arms program, the independent nuclear attempt to get an independent weapon. I th- yeah, I think it's it's a he's a, a he's a uh, a rocket scientist. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think yeah. that the whole the whole thing is like all these clues that have been sort of laced through the whole thing is that, ah, it turns out, actually, and then at the end, of course, um, the, the 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 number one is housed within a big rocket with the word one on it. Mm. He's a rocket scientist, and I, and it was like ah, okay, all right. <laughs> but it, it didn't really seem to explain anything else. But I mean, the what I what I love about the prisoner is that you can go well. The, oh yeah, that's what I think it is. Well, brilliant. I'm not 100 percent sure you're right, but I, whatever I think is, you're you're welcome to disagree with it as well. I think that's what's given its its long longevity. If it was about a specific thing, I think if McGowan just said, "Ah, the whole thing is about my um, reluctance to to join the uh, the common market," you go, mm-hmm. "Oh, right, that's what it was all about." All right, and it would just immediately cease being interesting. So you're saying but he's a, Bre- a Brexiteer, then? You're saying? So. <laughs> oh no, no, certainly not. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I, well, the other thing because McGowan is very ambiguous. You don't really. You he, he don't really know which where where his colours are on what his masters. You know, he's he was never particularly in, in in interviews. He never sort of gave the game away, but he was very sort of gnomic and and sort of cryptic about everything. Mm. Um, mm. I think the only thing he was very specific about was the whole thing about the penny farthing, and that he, he was very anti. Well, not super anti. He was just very wary of the way that we were developing. In terms of technology, 
mm. far too quickly. We were progressing. This was being invented. Well, we'll get this now. And then it was, uh, and then something else. But we'd never actually stop and go, is this, help- is this helping or hurting us? Mm. We just kind of take it on board, take it on board instantly. And then we were being overwhelmed by it. And we were being overwhelmed by a technology we didn't quite understand. And I think that's, he was, with everything else, he was kind of, well, why don't you bring your own thing to it? You know, and with, with that, he was like, no, no, this is, we are progressing too quickly. That's so it, funny. It was, I've never, yeah. I've never thought about how long the penny farthing actually probably was in, you know, was it, was it like the Blackberry of bicycles? So, like it had a, <laughs> a brief five year stint where everybody rode around in penny farthings and then someone said why don't we have two equally large wheels and maybe not so large and and the penny and it was like no penny farthing monthly was like the letters page were like no this is rubbish we want our big wheels 10 years later all the hipsters still driving penny farthing (laughs) you're you're equally shaped wheel nonsense what a weird, is it a strange thing? You said, why didn't you first go with two wheels of exactly the same size? Did, it's not like if you tried that first and it didn't work. Well, how about if we made the front one five times the size of the back one? It was, yeah. I'd love yeah. to be in there at the sort of, the sort of design meetings when, how, how they came up with that as the first idea. Yeah, there's, there's a great writer who once mentioned the idea that we've had wheels for years and we've had luggage for years, but it was only like 20 years ago somebody said, wait, why don't we put wheels on our luggage? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, instead of carrying them around all the time, why don't we just put them on the bottom and we can roll it around? Because that that's you watch 1970s, 1960s, people are always carrying massive, <laughs> essentially massive boxes with handles, you know, massive, very heavy boxes with handles. Right up until like the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't, I didn't have, I think at first, yeah. It's, I'm sure it, I, didn't, if I, didn't, didn't they reject an idea like that in Dragon's Den? <laughs> Wheels on bags, you mad? It'll never work. It'll never no, people work. enjoy carrying their luggage. Yeah, yeah. It's got you're the, taking what, something away from them. It will fall. You know, if it'll roll downhill if you're not watching. And there, there goes your <laughs> luggage. Um, so do you have a pet theory? I know you were saying, you know, oh, it's great. It can be anything to anyone. But, of course, there's, a, there's, a, you, there's also part of the joy of that is is working on your own pet theory and thinking yeah i think i've got the the answer and you and you being the expert who's who's um well written about it and read about it and and podcasted over it you must have some sort of i would substitute the word expert for enthusiast okay um i think i thought there i mean that i've the, one of the lovely things about doing this is that i've been that other people have got in contact and uh, got involved and people people who really are experts mm. um and so i've yeah, I, i'm still and yeah i'm still very much just an uh, you know a, a, a very very keen enthusiast um but um oh yes thinking about your question I, i'm honestly i'm i'm, I'm I'm stunted. Kai um... is currently boarding a rocket with the number one, <laughs> <laughs> blasting <laughs> off into space. Um, not really. To be honest, that that I'm 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 equally 
put it this way: you're talking to somebody who has a tape deck in their uh, in their car. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'm I'm very much of the the, the opinion that sh- I share it with Magoo and that we've sort of keep inventing stuff that we don't need and, it, and becoming obsessed by it and that sort of thing. So I kind of always, I always latched onto that. I, mm. And to an extent, I'd sort of every episode that there'd be something like that, I would. I'd, I'd I'd sort of see that, so that was always my kind of my way, what I my interpretation of things. I always liked sort of a reaction to technological the onrush of technological. Yeah, um, there was always takeover. something slightly slightly sinister about it, and then it, mm. that it was always slightly more. It was, cl- it was it was cleverer than us, and it would start it would start to overwhelm us and make make us more. You know, it would, there would be something nefarious about it. It wouldn't help us, even though it would be designed. We'd think, "Oh, this is great! I don't have to do this anymore." But there'd actually be something. We'd we'd lose something instead. Mm-hmm. And and then and then other people, some somebody somebody with malicious kind of uh, intent would actually sort of somehow work that out. And it, you know, it would it would always go a little bit wrong. So this is the kind of reason I I still have videotapes. Not many. Yeah. Yeah. From the telly, but I still got stuff <laughs> I taped from the nineties. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think I've got something <laughs> upstairs. I've got, got quite. A, I've got a box set of uh, Hearts of Darkness and Apocalypse Now uh, video cassettes that I've. Uh, oh, I've got them taped off BBC Two, and I've got the radio. <laughs> I've got sorry, I got the Romeo and Plus Juliet um, widescreen because I remember when widescreen came in because videos oh, yes. were always pan and scan and there was and before Blu-ray there was the widescreen section of the video HMV which was like where <laughs> the true cinephiles met um, so moving moving uh, uh, away a little bit from the prisoner or uh, I, I wanted to talk about a project that we've we've collaborated on uh, a, a podcast uh, which is based on a novel I wrote called Connery, uh, which mm. is a, a speculative novel. And um, yeah, the, and this is now going to be available. I'm going to be put, we're going to be putting out uh, episodes weekly. It's performed by Kai. Um, I, it's it's such a funny thing uh, listening to your own novel uh, being sort of, it's it's a, an amazing thing. I, I'm, I'm going to be frank about it. Um it, it's been an absolute pleasure to sort of listen to the, uh, as you've sent over the files, to listen to them being performed. And especially, congratulations on a, a, a superb Sean Connery impersonation. That's oh, extremely kind of a John. <laughs> See, it's not, it's not just the shushes. It's the, it's the sort of <laughs> no. back of the throat uh, sort of talking. It's the base... It's the, it's- it's the noises he makes. I think the the main one is like the creaking cellar door. The kind of yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lovely bit in Last Crusade, and I think he says uh, something like, oh, "That's really good." But it's the kind of the creaking and the in the Untouchables. There's there's a lot of ah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would someone say they were someone they were not? Yeah, who would say that? Who was not? Which, which makes no sense <laughs> because yeah. because what? they're a liar because they're <laughs> criminals. What sort of policeman yeah. are you? You're letting him off. Yeah. What, he said he was a, from the Treasury officer. Yeah. That's the like... first. That's the first thing I'd say to get out of whatever it is you're about to arrest me for. Where what? are you from? I'm f- <laughs> I'm from Ireland. <laughs> you haggish. <laughs> I'm just a poor beat cop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, he's so good. He's so he good. is so good. He's such. He was a lovely actor. I think he was. I think because people, oh, he couldn't do accents. Yeah, fine. Like people, that's what acting is. Richard Burton never did an accent in his life. I mean, he's. Oh, wait a second. Maybe he did. When when did he do an accent? I'm he very rarely does an accent. I mean, he's he's always RSC after a couple of pints. You know, he's uh, I, Ridley I Scott described Russell Crowe's accent in Gladiator. Yes, which, which, which by the way, I see a lot of Richard Burton in Gladiator. I think that's the look they were going for was sort of Anthony from. Uh, Cleopatra, that that yeah, that era Richard Burton with the the hair and everything. Um, so uh, so I mean, this was an idea that that you kind of we both kind of had of, of turning it into an audiobook. I th- I can't remember at the beginning if it was your suggestion or, but well, I I just wanted to uh, uh, it was it was good. it was like a test thing or for a uh, what do you call it to. Uh, uh, my God, my mind's got black. Just a sort of a, a demo that I was trying to record, but I mm. don't. I just want to. I don't want to just do it. I thought I'd better ask you first. Mm. Oh right, um, that's it. Yes, I remember. And then it was like, oh, should we do some some more of these? It's like, yeah, it's quite good fun. This. Yeah. Was yeah. It, was it, did I get it? Did you, it felt like about asking you sort of if I've uh, towelled your bathroom okay while you're on holiday. Did you? Did, was it? Was was it, was it kind of what you were after? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a really, it's it's the thing that's uh, I think is difficult about the novel. Let me just explain for our listeners what what the novel is about, and then there, uh, maybe um, uh, and then that will that will help me answer that question. Um, it's basically the story of a young boy who meets um, Sean Connery, or or maybe not. You're, it's never quite sure how much of this is in uh, uh, the protagonist's head, um, uh, and. And following this encounter, he's kind of inspired in, inspired in different ways of different decisions he makes in his life. And he has a career which is um, kind of nefarious and violent and weird and darkly comic, hopefully. Um, and so to come back to that, and then throughout his life, he meets Sean Connery um, at various moments. So it's a little bit of... Um, it uh, when I I not when I was writing it, but but afterwards when I sort of reread it, and I go, well, what does this remind me of as a reader? It reminded me a bit of Play It Again, Sam. Again, Sam. Yes, the, I was going to say the Woody Allen. Yes, exactly the Woody Allen sort of relationship with Humphrey Bogart. True Romance does it a little bit with him meeting Elvis in the bathroom as well. Mm. It had that, but if the Woody Allen character in uh, play it against Sam was sort of more a Patrick Bateman-y kind of uh, yes. um, psychopath. Uh, so like Cumbrian psycho. Yeah, exactly. Cumbrian psycho. There's ah, oh, I, I I missed that that as a subtitle. <laughs> that should have been there. Connery, yeah, the co- Cumbrian co- psycho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought that you you really got that tone because you basically have to play. Uh, well, you have to play a whole range of characters because he he goes to different places. It's very sort of globe trottery. So oh, yeah, slightly inspired by Bond. He goes you know goes to Paris for on his first mission and um, spends some time in New York. And that's kind of supposed to be like, you know, you'd have the James Bond where he's diamonds are forever 
takes place mainly, I mean, the book as much as the film takes place mainly in America and things like that. You'd have these very specific geographically located. There are some James Bond films which are really geographically located, actually. You know, you sort of live and Mm. let die is just in Harlem and, you know. I'm, I'm just starting to read that one now, yeah. 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 Oh, that's a great book as well. It's a really, um, that's one of the more sadist, sadistic ones. Yeah. And the number, I just read Dr. No as well, um, which is inc- remarkably similar to the book, uh, to the film. Because mm. some mm. of them, some of them really are, I mean, The Spy Who Loved Me is, I mean, but increasingly they just basically bought the title. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was it. <laughs> ben McIntyre wrote a great book about Fleming and he said that, um, I think, Spy Who Loved Me came after Goldfinger. It came after one of the more successful ones. And he said, it's just like seeing somebody in a decathlon, you know, get beat the world be- record in the hurdles and then kill a judge with the javelin <laughs> in, the, in the next event. You know, it's such a disastrous drop in quality that it's um, that everybody was sort of astounded. Oh, maybe Ian Fleming is a serious novelist. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What did you? What did? What attracted you to the novel? As you, as because of course you would, as you say, you were doing it as a as a as a project. But you, you know, you read the whole book at that point, and so. Um... Well, it was up on Substack. Um, I just, I just way I thought it was very very funny. I, I uh, some of the. Uh, I know you don't want to hear the sort of praise being piled upon you. No, too no, much. no, I do, I do. <laughs> John, you're a genius. There you go. That's uh, what it is. That, the rest of this podcast I mean, will just be that on a loop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I just thought it was genuinely very, very funny, very incredibly, incredibly dark at their, their points. But I thought you got the balance just, just right. Um, and I just enjoyed. I enjoyed reading it really. But as a, as a trying to do the to. to capture Sam Coleridge as he's called brilliantly um <laughs> because he's so incredibly violent, just unpleasant and uh you you can't play him I thought it'd be quite I thought you you're trying to obviously go for something slightly comic so I thought the best way to do it would be to have him play as, as just the nicest person in in the world you know yeah and the way that... you just describe and then you obviously you're describing these appalling things he does in a way, in a way that kind of sounds like Paddington, mm, mm. not quite so, but just going for that sort of that. If I was, if you were going to play him as some sort of uh, somebody who knew he was villainous, uh, you know, people trying to play bad as bad, I always I think, oh, for come, come on. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, that's where the Patrick Bateman thing sort of falls down. It's like Patrick Bateman's an evil yuppie, even if he isn't a murderer. So it doesn't really <laughs> matter, you know. Whereas this <laughs> this guy genuinely thinks, you know, what's the why do I keep getting into all this hassle when I'm so, you know, when I'm trying my best to be uh, you know, to be nice and everyone should just get on with everyone and Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was um I don't it was just and there were there were, it was, there were lovely call, you know, as you went through it, there were callbacks to the start and you felt that that something was making more and more sense as you as you read it and it was i don't just thought it was really good i forgot i I forgot it on i I put it on substack that's absolutely uh yeah yeah that was right in the very first weeks that substack sort of came out and i thought oh what could i use this for what could i you know um 
and I'm not sure how many people actually went through and read the whole thing uh, there. I think maybe, I think it's about, I mean, the first one was got a lot of sort of clicks and, and whatnot, but, but by the end it was about 40 or 50 clicks, you know, so you're just sort of going, okay, some, some, some of these might even be people who just clicking for the very first time and going, what's this? Doesn't make it was any sense. halfway through they realised it wasn't the uh, autobiography of Sean Connery. Well, I did worry. I do worry about that actually. When I when I was first sort of uh, pitching it to as a as a you know to my agent who who kind of didn't wasn't too keen on on sending it out. I have to I have to say, um, hence the podcast. Uh, that it was kind of that sense that maybe calling it Connery, people would want more Connery in it. They'd want it to be a novel about Sean Connery that is sort of like blonde for Marilyn Monroe. Yes, yeah. Um, but I always, ha I always had this idea that, well, I mean, growing up in Cumbria and being, you know, I, I always had this idea that I, I didn't live in the middle of nowhere. I had to get a bus to get to the middle of nowhere. It was like, you know, it wasn't even as central as the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, I did have a rich fantasy life. And uh, and I just thought meeting people who were famous was so impossible. It was so unlikely that it just struck me. Wouldn't it be interesting if that was, you know a thing if that happened if that actually happened or if your imagination was strong enough you could behave like it actually happened and that would somehow nourish you and nourish your inner life uh mm. with what you needed you know was that the, was that the spark that sort of set it off when you started writing it yeah i mean there's definitely things about sammy that are, um, are similar to my childhood definitely the the setting the uh some of the geographical locations are pretty much taken from areas around where i i'm from I, yeah i hasten to add i haven't killed anybody or any dogs or any old women and in the hills <laughs> or anything like that but i would definitely i remember as a kid i would definitely you know any trip to the toilet would involve me screwing a silencer onto my gun and taking out some terrorists on the way up the stairs and rolling a <laughs> grenade into the living room before i came down and machine gunning the survivors um you know that and to to, to be actually perfectly frank i still do it a little bit to this day you know <laughs> Garot, I, I, the odd the odd imaginary century i used to but i, I don't have the knees anymore <laughs> well well watch wild geese and see how much uh, <laughs> it's, see. It's, it's, i was watching where eagles dare and it just i, I know it was famously called um where doubles dare wasn't yeah, it yeah that was clint eastwood's uh, crack yeah, but there were so many fantastic scenes of like this some um, Richard Richard Burton sort of abseiling down a cliff and then just dropping into shot this quite clearly a different dimensioned man dropping into <laughs> shot. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about, I mean, Eastwood had a uh, you know he's one to talk because if you watch the first Fistful of Dollars, there's a scene where he's sort of. Um, galloping from one sort of setup to another and he's very obviously not only not clint eastwood he's not wearing a hat and he's got a, like an afro <laughs> it's just really it's like the worst the worst possible dub double ever it's just like guy on horse he'll he'll do you know um there's another richard burton film called breakthrough which was uh have you seen that with lee marvin 
And oh the, no! Is that the one where he's a, a German exactly, uh, yes. soldier? Yeah, yeah, like nineteen eighty. Yeah, and it's an unofficial sequel to Cross of Iron, Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. It, he's got ah. the same name as uh, James Coburn's character in Cross of Iron, and it's just absolutely. He, he's so old and he's so obviously got a bad back. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like in in every action scene, you can see he's got a bad back. Yes. <laughs> it's like, it, has he been shot? Oh, no. <laughs> he's just got a bad back. If he has to do anything more than pick up a pen off the floor, they call him a stuntman. You can see him wince as he moves a the... piece of paper across the table, you know. <laughs> Is he lights a cigarette? It's like, oh, how? <laughs> God damn Doesn't it. even his hand with the lighter. Yeah, <laughs> it's all, obviously a fake hand. This comes up. <laughs> God can't raise it, old boy. Sorry. Yeah, right. Quite close up here. It was it was amazing. Some of those actors. We we talk about this in the with the prisoner. These these actors. Like, my God, he must be about sixty five there. And you look him up, and he was thirty eight. Yeah. Yeah. Connery, Connery um, in Diamonds Are Forever. He was 40. Yeah, yeah. What? I'm, I'm 10 years older than Connery was in Diamonds Are Forever. And uh, and I look, I don't look anywhere near as old as he looks in that film. No, my God. He just decided, I, just, I don't have to try, I don't have to stop anything and eat whatever I like now. And I kind of, just in the, those, those times, the, the, he, he kind of, his, his Bond films, he aged so rapidly throughout mm. those, those five. Well, yeah, you know, what is it, five or six? Six initially, did, wasn't it? This, yeah, six, because then he came back for... Oh, no, he came back for... Um... He, skipped, he skipped 1969, didn't he? So yeah. it was a bit of a two-year yeah. gap. But he... Um, and then, of course, poor Richard Burton, you think, well, look at him. He was, he's 75. Of course he's going to be... No, he's not. He's no, not. no, no. But... Yeah. Um, I suppose none of us. I don't think anyone drinks that kind of quantity of scotch now as, as that as was standard back then. You know, Trevor I mean, he, he was on two or three packets of cigarettes a day as well. I mean, he was he was puffing away through cigarettes all the time. Got my so, oath. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's uh, he's just the best. He's my favorite actor, I think. Burton and Connery are, are, are the two actors I come back to time and time again. Yeah. Connery, I was thinking, because... Do you know what? There was a, a, obviously, you're a Robin and Marion fan. Mm, yeah, Richard Lester, yeah. Ah, because he... I mean, he's, he, one of the other things, when you're doing Sean Connery, you've, you suddenly have to just imbue yourself with as much kind of masculinity as you can possibly inject into yourself, because that's kind of what he is. That's kind of... But watching Robin and Marion, there's such a lovely scene where he's talking to her, having rescued her, and he just says... It's just a simple line. He says, you're so beautiful. Mm. And his eyes, mm. he's puppy. He just turns into a puppy, mm. and he he could he could go he could do all these different things. As, as I was saying, he's such a, a much much better actor than than people take him for. They just think he's this big star. Mm. But mm. a lovely lovely actor, I thought. Mm. I, yeah, I think the same thing's true of Michael Caine to some degree. That people for years and years there was this idea that Michael Caine was wooden. And always played Michael Caine, yeah. and then and then no, it's it's he, he's he does so many daring things, you know. Ooh. Oh, that'd be down, down a sec. That's very kind of you. Oh, <laughs> sorry about this, listeners. Uh, I've been offered offered appetizers. Oh, lovely. 
Oh, lovely. Yeah, appetizers. <laughs> Rice on film will now become temporarily the cooking show. Yeah. Well, we were talking about recipes before we started recording. We should have just included all of that. We should, we should, we should, we should actually, Rice on film for now on should end with a recipe. That's, well, go on. Let, give us a, give <laughs> us a recipe. Because you, of course, have a wonderful restaurant in North Wales. Oh, this is true, yes. I would, I would... 500 meters from this cinema. As <laughs> <laughs> the crackling noise as the advert yeah. ends. Westless <laughs> is available in the foyer. <laughs> in the interval, you'll be able to buy King Cones. If you're drinking Bacardi. <laughs> Do you remember that? The dog, the dog and duck down the high street. <laughs> yeah. That, so, that catching, the like... last, catching the last bus home. You think, hang on, I was 10 when I first saw this advert in the cinema. I'm 19 now. Surely, surely other people are paying for adverts. Yeah, yes. Ray Brooks. Did you have, so do you have a recipe for us? Oh, I'm trying to think. There's actually a recipe for a posset in uh, in our uh, prisoner book, which was rather nice. What's a posset Um, when it's at home? A posset, sir. It's it's a sort of um, a sort of cream-based it was slightly meaty affair, uh, sort of cream and a touch of honey, um, and then you sort of you sort of drink that as a sort of uh, I think it was the kind of thing they drank before Horlicks was invented. Ah, I see. Right, so old had a sort of, a sort of you know, a soporific quality to it. Mm. It's also a nice set dessert. Goes mm. well with uh, if you infuse it with lavender. There you go. There you are, listeners. There you go, listeners. We've the first ever recipe. And by the way, that links to our Colombo chat earlier because you bought me and sent me Cooking with Colombo. Ah, yes. Have you done anything from me yet? The lavishly, yes, I did a, I think I did the chili. Yes, Johnny Cash's chili recipe. Exactly. Amazing. The lavishly illustrated, by which I mean there are photos of food that look like car accidents in there. (laughs) It's a little bit like if you look up Vincent Price and cookery, I mean, bless his heart, he's trying, but the photographs aren't exactly appetizing. Uh, That's the thing with all any book from the cookery from the 70s that that was what was that camera, the film stock they used that made everything look. Everything looked like it was set in aspic. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly well, actually, it. I think everything yeah. was set in aspic. <laughs> that might have been the aspic. Least... <laughs> I think the cause of that was aspic more than anything else. I know. It was the it was the it was the, it was the, the foolishly somebody invented at exactly the same time aspic and the ring mold, which uh, meant that every single seventies dinner party would have something set in red jelly, mm. usually some vi- prawns or something. God, we were lucky to dodge that. Just and about often, moment. often those paper cuffs that they put around the legs of uh, <laughs> chickens yeah, and chicken, lamb cutlets on the yeah, yeah. <laughs> little paper, just in case you want to pretend they've got cuffs and cufflinks and whatnot. <laughs> I, re- I remember my mum, nineteen seventy eight, making the first uh, spaghetti bolognese in Cumbria, I think, and uh, and shocking, ah. shocking and impressing her friends in equal measure. Yeah, I'm not eating any of that foreign muck. <laughs> so, yeah, it's disgusting. Look at it. Absolutely. Oh, God. Oh, brilliant. I, okay. I, I had to... Go ahead, Kai. No, I was going to say, um, a, a while back, we had a bit of a sort of 70s party once. 
And uh, we were trying to eat some of this, make up, cook up some of the stuff that we used to eat when we were kids that was amazing, like Angel Delight and stuff mm. like that. And to a man, every single recipe was just disgusting. My <laughs> God. I don't know if they've changed everything. But, I mean, I remember just Angel, I could, I could just just squeeze kind of bags of Angel Delight into my mouth all day. I would have been a happy child. It was this, it was God almighty. I used, to, I used to eat raw jelly. Oh, yeah. You remember you used yeah, to get was... cubes of jelly? I just used to eat them like that without making them into jelly. Oh, yeah. And that um, was... To toast, we did it instead of... We'd, uh, we were making some appetizers like toast with toast toppers. Do you remember that stuff? Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. It was a kind of oh, weird grey-green mush. It was... Um, yeah. And to, I mean, to, to steal a line from somebody else, it looked like somebody had tried to invent vomit without the aid of a human stomach. <laughs> And then it was mass produced and, uh, well, just put on toast, maybe. I think you put it on toast, then you grilled it. Oh, God, Lord. I was, and it was from the same devious minds that brought you sandwich spread. Ugh. I know, Ugh. I know, I know, I know. I this remember, recipe section's taken a terrible turn. I know. I remember going to QuickSave uh, to buy vodka and the cheap vodka. When I got it home, I looked at it and it wasn't. It was too cheap to be called vodka, and it was called <laughs> Polstoy Spirit Drink. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like oh, 4%. ninety-four percent or something. I know it wouldn't even strip paint. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, Lord. Uh, brilliant, Kai. I think we've I think we've uh, we've encouraged everybody um, to to go forth and and revisit the seventies and the, <laughs> the, the, the 19, May nineteen sixty seven. Um, so the book is called Free for All and, the, and named after the podcast, uh, which Indeed. is also, which is also called Free for All. I'll put links. Uh, in the show notes, and I'll put links to our, our new podcast, Connery, which is the first episode is already up, and the second episode is due up uh, this week as well. So, um, yeah, I uh, hope everybody who listens to this will uh, give it a shot. Um, and thanks very much for um, for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Bon appetit. Grazie. I'll be seeing you. Grazie tanto. Oh, oh. oh. Oh, that I I should remember. I should have to say something now, shouldn't I? Is there a stock reply that I have? To be seeing you, yeah. Ah, uh, no, just no. to simply. I just shout and slam a door or something. Or <laughs> turn around in my chair. Just, just, just very quickly inflate a huge white balloon and throw it at me. Okay, there you go. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Kai. Lovely talking. You too. Good night.